0: Welcome to the Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan along with uh, Peter Evers. In just a bit, we're going to discuss uh, trans rights in America as a part of our Mental Health Matters continuing discussion. It was one of the major topics uh, of that uh, event, which we had. Uh, this past Wednesday, and you can check out on our Facebook page still, and at org is welcome in Peter Evers right now. He is the CEO here at uh, BAMSI. Peter, how are you? Good, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Good. So before we get into our Mental Health Matters postscript and also um, discussing a little bit in that postscript about uh, trans rights In America, this Saturday represents a time period in which uh, many people have been hoping for for a long time. When Massachusetts is really back open for business, Fenway Park is going to be open at 100% capacity, and, of course, restaurants and all the protocols, et cetera, are being lifted. So what does that mean here at uh, at BAMSI, and what are the challenges for a CEO and leader of a large organization in trying to determine – you know what is right as the um, governor has taken off the training wheels, so to speak, on COVID.
1: Yeah, it feels really, really good. I think everybody's breathing a bit of a sigh of relief. But I will tell you that having gone to the Red Sox last week, when it was uh, was it twenty five percent, twenty five, it was wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> there was no there was no queues anywhere. I, 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 I paid. Uh, that means lines for those who I'm are sorry, no lines, and um, and uh, we didn't even pay for parking. Um, yep. But, yeah, this is a relief. People are beginning to feel this sense of optimism and hope um, that I don't think anybody's felt for a year. And so, um, But I think there are a lot of issues that we have to discuss, and that is, what are we going to do? I mean, are we just going to go back to uh, business as usual? Um, uh, and if we do that, do we leave behind a lot of the lessons that we've learned over the last year about how we communicate with each other and where we can do our work? When I think about March of uh, 2020, I often think about the flexibility and adaptability of the workforce here at Bamsi. First of all, I think about those essential workers who came into work every day because they didn't have a choice uh, and they kept the organization running. And I, I thank Them every day for that, but I do think about how all the clinicians, um, you know, got refurbished uh, laptops and um, and got encrypted, and our IT department did this amazing work to make people have the flexibility of working from home. And we we missed a slight beat, but we hardly missed a beat, and we did amazing work. What are the lessons we learned from that? Well, I think we know that we have a certain amount of space here. Uh, at BAMSI that perhaps we don't need anymore if we move to a hybrid model. And then that gets back to this drumbeat of lack of waste, making sure that we're efficient as an organization so that every dollar that we save goes into the workforce so we can pay a living wage or, or get towards a living wage. And we can make sure that the facilities we do have are um, as perfect as they can be for the people we serve. And everything has to fit into that, into those two notions. Um, And so we are, actually, this morning we had a meeting to say, well, what's our strategy for that? What's our messaging for that? And one of the things that we have to talk about is office space. Do we look at our office space uh, in the same way as we always have done? Um, People put their pictures up of their kids, and they own that office space. And in human services, it's nice to have an office because it just feels good. But do we need that anymore if people are gonna be home two days or three days a week? I don't think so. So we need to shift in our admin capacities to, a, uh, to an idea of not owning space, but renting space. So just think about that for a minute. When I come into the office in the morning now, I sit down at my space, I boot up my computer. At the end of the day, I go home, and I might not come in the next day. So this space just sits as it is, unused. We have to be more efficient than that. So we're looking at things um, like um, IT support in allowing us to book space in the organization. So think about this. You could book your week's activity as a day in Foxborough, maybe a day in Worcester, um, helping out over there, and then booking a day uh, or two at home, and then a day in Brockton. That kind of freedom of movement and organization means we need less space, means it's less cost, that money goes back into the programs.
0: Yeah, I have um, been in a number of different capacities. One was at running a, a radio station, and I – never really wanted to have a office. I eventually did actually during the course of the pandemic because I was the only person there and we couldn't go anywhere. So I decorated an office uh, and I ended up leaving a couple months after. But anyway, <laughs> um, but I've always kind of just been in that mindset of, of renting space and working you know, where I am um, as opposed to you know, needing to have a, a corner office. But to be honest, a lot of people like that and uh, a lot of people view that as being you know making it uh quote unquote is to be able to have their own office put up their uh their pictures and you know they're they see that as being something that is you know significant um to them so i'll be interested to see what the reaction is from people on that um but i do feel that it is something that you know, makes sense because uh, you we are in an environment where we have seen via forced adoption that a lot of the things that take place can take place easier over um, an interface as opposed to having in person meetings. I think there is a time for people to to get together, but you know, to me, like my office. Signified more of a just a feed up, hangout type of thing as opposed to a, a work thing. When you're engaged with work, you're around the board table, uh, the boardroom table. You are um, engaged, you know, on an interface now, and the office is just kind of a chill zone as opposed to anything else. But now you got to chill on your couch.
1: That's right, and you have the ability to do that, right? Right. So it really is a question of. The, Swings and roundabouts in a way. What do I gain? What do I lose? And w- but we have to look at it from the operation. How can we minimize cost now that we have this grand experiment that happened? I mean, there are people who have not been, especially from the state, who have not been into their offices yeah. in 14 months. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's true here. It might be true for a couple of people, and they've not missed a beat. So we've learned a different way of behaving and it's easier to let go, I think, when you've been through that, than us just sort of saying, all right, everybody, you're not gonna own an office, we're going to a hoteling model. Now it's much easier to do that because we think, well, you know, Most of the time, I'm not in my office or or, or I'm doing productive things outside of my office. Now is the time to do it. And, you know, that next weekend, as we move into June, we'll be, you know, sending out. And, and of course, it's not the same for everybody. We'll we'll have a philosophy that's configurable uh, to each department. Um, And so finance might have a a slightly different take to H.R., uh, the field will be the field. it will continue to do what they do. Maybe we'll do things differently in the, in the clinical field where we'll have a hybrid model of people doing remote but coming in. Uh, all of those things we're planning out. But we're not rushing back into anything, Chris, like saying, okay, everybody back. We're, we're, we're moving into a new era of work now, and I think everybody's feeling the same way.
0: What are your plans in regard to masks, um, vaccinated people versus non-vaccinated people, uh, and if there are going to be changes
1: in in that realm? We're still going to encourage people to get vaccinated. We're still going to follow the CDC guidelines. We still strive for herd immunity as a country, although I think that's probably a long way off. Uh, In our homes, we'll continue to follow the guidance from DPH at the moment. Uh, Everybody knows, even though people are vaccinated, They they've been asked to wear masks. That's going to change. We'll have uh, the people people who do not people do not need to be tested uh, if they've been vaccinated. There's another incentive for people to get. To get get vaccinated. So we're gradually moving towards this sense of the lifting of those restrictions, but we're not going to be ahead of our ski tips on this. We're not going to do anything that the CDC and the state uh, 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 are telling us not to do. There's no point in doing that. We got into this, we're getting out of it, we need to be careful, we need to be cautious, and we need to take advantage of all of the new technology that we've got uh, nowadays, to make sure that um, you know we have a hybrid model when when this is all said and done.
0: I thought our mental health matters event last week was so good, and there were so many amazing raw stories and and moments. And you know, one of the major themes that came out of it is um, how you know. An illness, such as having HIV, can have such a significant uh, mental health impact because of the stigma associated with that, particularly uh, decades ago. And also uh, the major challenges that exist with um, being a part of the uh, LBGTQ community and the challenges that exist with, with that as well.
1: Yeah, it really did. I mean, it was a wonderful evening. Uh, Also, it was a it was a triumph of technology, right? I mean, usually we would have been having that in a forum. um, And uh, I don't think we missed a a beat with that with the wonderful work that you and and many others did in terms of making sure that that was a a Zoom uh, event. you know, we, we talk about exposure and proximity to people, and that was just a great example of hearing very human stories of struggle uh, and very human stories of recovery and resilience, and, um, and I really enjoyed being part of that. i going to hand it back
0: over to you as you uh, introduce uh, today's guest.
1: Uh, we have a very special guest today. Uh, who is Jesse Pack. Hi, Jesse, how you doing? Hello. Um, who uh, is the director of our HIV services. And uh, I often think, Jesse, well, certainly before I came to BAMSI, I was always amazed at the breadth uh, of the programs that we provide here at BAMSI and... Having been somebody who's worked in this field for a long time and and worked at other agencies like Dimmock Health Center, for instance, I remember at the beginning uh, of the HIV AIDS uh, crisis, there were certain providers who just didn't want anything to do with this level of service. There was so much stigma and so much uh, unknown, I guess, if we go back to the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm associated with an organization who is prepared or was prepared to stand up and say, these are, we need to serve this population. This is a population of need. Uh, and you are the manifestation, I guess, as the Director of HIV Services, of uh, that commitment that BAMSI has had over the years um, to this population um, i 'd love to know a little bit about you and about the programs Jesse them, so if we can share that with folks. Um, I know that you 've been at Ba for about six years and you, you worked at the at uh, uh, the age project in Worcester before that. Um, now you 're responsible for two or three programs, three programs I think, and around about fourteen staff, so maybe you can just sort of tell us a little bit about the programs um, and uh, and what kind of services that we 're providing
2: sure. So the HIV services unit has about three programs kind of under that umbrella. Uh, The first one and the oldest one is the case management program where we provide medical case management for folks living with HIV. So we connect them to healthcare, make sure they get their meds, help them stay on top of their health. Mm -hmm. Um, We also serve their families as well. We have a food pantry and help with things like that. We also have our prevention wing, which includes the COPE Center, which is in downtown Brockton. And it's a drop-in center that mostly serves people who are actively using drugs. Um, We do needle exchange. We do Narcan, which is the overdose reversal drug distribution. We do a lot of HIV, hepatitis C, and STD testing Mm -hmm. there as well. Um, And then we have TCOR, which stands for Transgender Community Outreach, Resources, and Empowerment, which is a unique program that specifically serves transgender and non-binary and gender-expansive people in Brockton and the greater Plymouth County.
0: So a number of things off of that, as you know, we had our mental health matters uh, event last week, and uh, there are two individuals who uh, were part of that who shared their experiences of uh, one living with um, HIV and some of the uh, the stigma uh, that she experienced, and also um, individual who is uh, transgender and the type of. Um, Hatred and uh, vitriol that that community often uh, receives. So, I'm interested in how you feel um, those individuals are treated as a whole, and do both on in both aspects of things. And you know, what are the challenges that individuals within your programs face from a mental health uh, perspective? And do you see? Mental health um, you know, being a, a challenge, or mental illness being a challenge, that that kind of connects through those programs, even though um, they are different in what they are um, addressing specifically.
2: Okay. Yeah, so I think all three of our programs we're serving people that um, have a stigma attached to them, whether it be that they are transgender or living with HIV, or a person who uses drugs. All of those communities, there's a lot of stigma attached to those identities. Um, I think in particular, I'm very protective of our t program, um, because I think uh, nationally, transgender people in this country um, are under attack um, in a very physical way. Um, trans women of color are getting murdered left and right. Actually, in Boston, um, a well-known community member was recently murdered. Her name was Jahaira um who was very popular and well-loved and was murdered. Um, so I think, you know, when you have to live with that level of stigma and violence, uh, that's definitely going to impact your mental health. And we see that a lot with our T-Core participants, um, a lot of depression and anxiety uh, in particular. Some substance use disorder as well as people are trying to basically self-medicate their mental health problems.
1: you know, what's interesting to me is that we talk a lot about the progress that we've made, and I think we have um, in some of these issues. I think about, you know, um, the issues of substance use disorder, how people are beginning to recognize that as a disease and that recovery is real and possible and there's a whole community. There's still stigma about that. When I think about mental illness, I think people are beginning to have conversations more about mental illness in, in, in this country, especially after the um, after the isolation uh, of the last year. it, it does strike me that the trans community is the last bastion of the of acceptable um, bias um, in this country, and it is the casual way in which people refer to trans folks. Is I don't I don't know how much that's changed. I think it has changed a lot. We're having legislators now who are who are trans who are telling their stories. You know, last uh, Wednesday was wonderful um, with the mental health matters. Uh, You know, teasing out these issues of you know of 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 folks who have different aspirations and different issues that they're dealing with. Um, How do we address this issue of violence against the trans population? Um, It's so concerning in the number of people who are dying, Uh, and it's also concerning that you know that law enforcement doesn't well that we don't seem to have a a strategy or a plan or an educational plan or a public health plan uh, to address this when it's right in front of our faces.
2: Yeah, it's a big problem. I think the number one health risk for transgender people, particularly trans people of color, is violence. Mm-hmm. Um, there are resources and people working on that who are advocates for the community, but you know, to me it's really telling that This community is undergoing this assault, this violent assaults all the time. And then what do we get from state legislatures? We get legislation banning the treatment of transgender children. We get legislation trying to ban transgender people from using the bathroom. In Massachusetts in 2018, we had a similar problem with people put trans rights on the ballot Mm -hmm. and everyone got to vote Mm -hmm. on whether trans people should have access to public bathrooms. Mm -hmm. And it's like if you replace the word transgender with um, African American, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, we're talking about trying to legislate people out of existence. Um, I think what to tackle the issue of violence that trans people are undergoing, uh, we really need to speak First and foremost, we need to speak with that community, with those communities, and find out what resources they need. Mm-hmm. And no one has really done that outside of the Northeast mm-hmm. and California. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I th- when I think about um, what members of the trans community are going through right now, a number of things uh, come to mind. And you know the the evolution of progress takes a, a very long time, and that is been evident through the course of this country's and really world history. But when you think back about uh, the civil rights movement, um, there were, and also, uh, equal rights for, um, I- individuals who are homosexual, um, education was key, and I think that that's multifaceted. You look at, um, I great interview a number of years ago with Mary Wilson, who's one of the Supremes who has uh, passed away recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was cognizant of the fact that when she went on uh, TV with the Supremes, that she was the first and perhaps only African-American female that many uh, white viewers had seen. So Mm -hmm. she carried that with her and knew that she had what she needed to do to come across and that she was going to break down barriers in how people viewed Um, African Americans. And Jackie Robinson was similar in his conduct when he broke the color barrier in in baseball. And I think that as popular culture introduces uh, individuals um, and the stigmatization of them um, starts to dissipate in what the images are of people in, uh, in their minds, that progress starts to take place. I still don't feel as though the uh, trans community has been aptly represented and depicted in um, popular culture. And I feel that once that starts to take place, I think uh, things will change. You mentioned the short-term challenges. Yeah, I mean, when there's violence committed against any individuals, there needs to be a um, a, a, a focus on that and uh, an ability to to make change. But I also think that as... You know one of the big changes that took place in uh marriage equality was when legislators or um people that had one position on a uh, a certain topic started to have loved ones who came forward and said yeah i'm uh I'm gay um and this is how things change in my view popular culture um then people start to be more comfortable. In uh, moving forward, and not thinking that their careers and their lives are going to change as a result of them being who they are, uh, I think that it's it is a, a steady progress that takes place. Uh, and I'm curious as to you know your thoughts on on that. Do you, and to, kind of as Peter was mentioning before, like it is it is still um, acceptable. It's not acceptable, but it is seen as being acceptable to um, have a bias against individuals who are transgender. And uh, I don't feel that that changes until there is the appropriate um, popular culture changes and education shifts.
2: Yeah, sure. So I think – yeah, I think we – the trans community, we've really – we have a number of really now well-known celebrities. We have Elliot Page. We have Laverne Cox. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could go on and on listing all of the actors and actresses who have come out as mm-hmm. trans or non-binary in the past five to ten years. It's really Demi
0: Lovato good. and yeah. Yeah. that conversation that took place here, in, uh, in Boston mm-hmm. recently mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So – I mean, but I still don't feel like not to interrupt, but what I do. Um, but it's for like if let's say you're a fifty year old male and you're sitting at home and I still don't feel like that there's been, you know, that type of a indoctrination where they know who the people you are discussing are. Like when there's when something really, you know, significant happens, then it starts to to hit people. I feel like that's still it still hasn't permeated popular culture like, you know, Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, something like that nature of playing, I, in my view. Go ahead.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think uh, trans people have become very visible over the past 10 years um, in popular culture. The other thing you have to keep in mind is people only started coming out when it was safe to come out. For example, in Massachusetts, you until 2011, was when we got civil rights protections for trans and non-binary people. Before 2011, you could be f- summarily fired from your job for being trans, for example. And then we didn't get protections for public accommodations until 2018, which means uh, public accommodations and stuff like bathrooms, hotels, hospitals, etc. cetera. Um, so once you get sort of the legislation protecting people, more people come out and are open about their trans status and that also helps to shift culture I think if we look at um, the gay rights movement, a big part of that movement was the push for people to come out as being Mm -hmm. gay or lesbian or bisexual um, and a lot of people weren't out and I think that's kind of where we are with Trans people, and that people are now able to come out and transition and be open with their identity. But with this visibility comes uh, with extra visibility comes extra risk,
1: danger, yeah.
2: Um, Because now people know that you are trans, and now they can target you. So I think actually right now is a really crucial time for trans rights because we have. We have a lot of momentum going forward for cultural change, but, and people are being more visible, but at the same time we have uh, epidemic of violence. Uh, we have anti-trans legislation being passed around the country. Um, so it, it's, it's, a back and, it's like a push back and forth. You go forward and then you take a few steps back as you're moving forward.
1: Yeah, I, I i couldn't I couldn't describe it better. I think when you think, you know, we are making progress, and then you read about, for instance, the the person um, in Boston recently was just shocking, and I certainly knew a few people that were that knew them, um, but. I think as we go forward, we are making progress. And I guess the last question I'd have for you is is a generational one, mm-hmm. because when I think about gay rights and I think about um, all of these things, it seems each generation becomes more accepting and more more um, uh, pushing the boundaries a little. And I do feel because um, I'm of a certain age um, and I have kids who are in the in their twenties that there is a different. Um, Feeling around trans issues now with that generation, and maybe that 's way too sweeping a comment, but I think we're, I think we 're making progress in that sort of open mindedness that we 're seeing with each generation maybe
2: I think it really depends on where you 're located uh, in this country. I think generally, I do agree with you that younger people we saw similar things with uh, the gay rights movement, where younger generations were more accepting. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, young people are coming out as trans and transitioning and living fulfilling, happy lives, and so cisgender people see their friends yeah, who right. are coming out as transgender. They're like, "Oh, they're a human being. Like I'm a human being. That's right. We want to take care of them. Make sure that they're doing yeah. all right." You know, I
1: think I, you. I think you just hit on on it. That sort of that. Um Knowing somebody, you know, and, yeah. and, and it's funny because in the over the last year with the George, George uh, Floyd murder, you know, a lot of African American people say, "Just know somebody, just get to know them," yeah. um, and that proximity, I think, is helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, i you know, again, I think that that's the biggest um, biggest barrier uh, is first, you know, having uh, more um, popular culture influence, and the second piece is, you know, once it's interesting you know, which is the you know which is the chicken which is the egg does it is it a popular and grassroots movement that leads to the legislation or is it the legislation that leads to people being more comfortable and i think that we have seen different circumstances and, and differing times i think that in this particular movement it's the legislation because it was so intrusive that is making people more comfortable in um in, in seeking and um, and being able to have their true identities, where in the past it was this huge sweeping amount of individuals that said we need to have equal rights for African Americans under the law, or uh, marriage equality needs to needs to exist. And I'm interested in your take on that. Do you feel that this is different than those two movements in that um, the laws are creating an environment where individuals are more comfortable in, in 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 transitioning
2: i think it's a combination of both of those things um you don't get legislation passed in unless you have a movement behind you pushing for that legislation so you you need the people to make the change and you need to inspire them and um get them on board and that's kind of what happened in Massachusetts with our trans and non-binary communities is people very brave people came out as trans when it was not safe to be out as trans and helped change the law to make sure that there um, is protections and so I think there's always kind of like with civil rights movements this is just my opinion and what I've noticed. um, You need... You always have, like, sort of pioneers. You have, like, the pioneers who pioneer um, justice and safety and whatever the issue that needs to be tackled, getting tackled. And then... um, And I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture saying, oh, once you get laws on the books then everybody's safe and can come out and be happy when the reality is that's just the beginning mm-hmm. that's just the beginning once you get the civil rights laws on the books then you have to um defend them exactly
0: <laughs> exactly that is such a key point in that a lot of times we'll take the election of barack obama as president of the united states where a lot of times there is these moments where intellectuals feel okay the, the glass ceiling has been broken. It's over now. We've passed these laws. Post-racial society. We're, we're in a post-racial <laughs> society, and then no, that's just uh, you know that is a agitation to the individuals that um, seek something different, and with that, there's going to be their response. So, in order for equality to exist, there has to be a consistent um, and prevalent perseverance on the part of those who wish for it to exist. Once the laws are there, does that not, does not mean that they can be undone or changed or that they can become right. more drastic and go in, in the other direction. It's a constant perseverance uh, on the part of those that that seek equality. And I think that for, for many, particularly in the African-American community, um, the election of Barack Obama followed by the type of vitriol that um, he experienced in some quarters, followed by the election of Donald Trump, um, was a, a wake-up call to many activists across the country, not just African-American activists, but but many about how just because you feel that the arc is moving in your direction does not mean that the pendulum can swing in a different direction.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're seeing the backlash, the anti-trans backlash yeah. now very very severely Um, I'm originally from the south I moved up here because the south is not safe Mm -hmm. for GLBT people it still is not Um, that's just my opinion Um, and it's just heartbreaking and devastating to see these states passing laws that are in my opinion just mean spirited Mm -hmm. like Arkansas just banned um Outright banned health care for transgender children. And I got to tell you, there's now families who are fleeing Arkansas who have transgender children that are relocating because their children will die without that medical care. And um, I think Tennessee just passed a ban as Mm -hmm. well.
0: Dwayne Wade's uh, child, the famous uh, basketball player, um, I believe is either going through the process of transitioning or has. And so that is another one of those kind of moments I was talking about before that can change how the quote unquote public um, views these types of circumstances as it becomes more quote unquote uh, real for them. Jesse, thank you so much. That was a tremendous conversation anytime. Jesse Pack joining us here. This has been the Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan for Peter Evers. Have a great rest of the day, everybody.